Today we're talking about the genitive case. I remember the genitive case well uh, for a number of different reasons in study. But one particular story stands out in my mind whenever I talk about the study of Greek. And it's one of my favorite stories, so I've told it before. But I get to tell it again, and it's okay. And if you've heard it before, enjoy it in the spirit that I enjoy it every time I tell it. And I'm on like my 39th time to tell this story, and I still love it. One of the Greek professors I had was named Dr. Harvey Floyd. And some of you got to hear him when he was in his 80s. We had him out to the library to give a lecture. And he was a marvelous Greek professor. But he was one of these college professors that had some idiosyncrasies about them. Some mannerisms which were really distinctive to him. One of them was his glasses. Now, his glasses would break and he would just tape them with adhesive tape or bandages. He didn't care. He was, he was one of these absent-minded professors who was not very conscientious about appearances. As long as he could read with them, he was fine. But he often took his glasses off for emphasis. And I think that may be why they broke so frequently and would have to get retaped. But he would take his glasses off for emphasis. And he would also speak very carefully. And he would speak with, um, uh, he, he, would, he would often almost, the, whatever the opposite of, of hissing is. If hissing is exhaling, he would do the opposite. His would be, and, and I don't know what the word is for that, but he, he would be sucking wind. Thank you, Brent. Um, Now, I went to Lipscomb University at a time where it was still relishing its historical past. Lipscomb University is 130 plus years old, and, and it's in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was a, a very Bible-based school, and for some period of time, the Bible department had been instructed that they were only allowed to teach out of the old King James, that's 1611 version, or, because they were cutting edge, the old American Standard Version, which was 1901, which I'm sure when it came out in 1901, the Lipscomb faculty was really excited to be able to teach out of it. But they'd never changed the policy since then. And so when I was there in the late 70s, early 80s, that was, that was the choice for the faculty. The Bible department had to teach out of those two. Now, Dr. Floyd was an anomaly in a number of ways, one of which is he taught justification, our salvation, our being made right with God by faith in ways that caused many people in the Church of Christ to break out in hives. And so he would teach this, and there were a set of students who seemed dead bent and determined on getting Dr. Floyd fired. And one of them was convinced the way to do it was to catch Dr. Floyd violating school policy. So he was going to do that, he didn't take Greek under Dr. Floyd. He didn't know Dr. Floyd very well, but he knew that if he could get Dr. Floyd fired for being a liberal who taught that we were saved by grace, then life was going to be on easy street for him. He will have done his major accomplishment. God can take him now. Drop the mic. He's ready to walk off the stage. So this student is in a Romans class, and what Dr. Floyd would do is he would figure out quickly, which version of the Bible people had. So if I've got Dr. Bob down here, and he brought his New Jerusalem Bible. Or I've got Brent, and Brent has an NIV. Well, Dr. Floyd figured out what version everyone had, and he would just ask them. He would say, Bruce, 
Would you please read for us Romans 3, 21 and 22? Bruce would read. Because he knows which version Bruce has, he gets around the policy. Till one day, Dr. Floyd read himself. Romans 3, 21 and 22. And there was a student who had both versions, the King James and the American Standard Version, and had been lying in wait for this moment. The student raised his hand. Dr. Floyd said, yes. The student said, Dr. Floyd, I'm having trouble understanding your teaching. I cannot follow you. I have the King James Version, and I have the American Standard Version. But neither one of them reflect what you just read. Would you please tell me which version of the Bible you are teaching from? Dr. Floyd was at a podium in front of the class. Dr. Floyd looked at the student. Which version? Ooh, yes. Which, which version? Which which you want to know which version I am teaching from? Yes, that's oh, that's a good question. Yes, it is. I don't. I don't know how to answer. I, I tell you, why don't you get up and you come here and you you tell the class the version? Yeah, yes, I think that's a good idea. You you come, you come tell the class the version. So the kid gets up, gaily marches down the aisle, looks at the podium, and finds what we all knew, that Dr. Floyd only reads out of the Greek. <laughs> and so he just translates as he's going along. And the student who didn't take Greek is, you know, and Dr. Floyd said, what shall, what shall we say to the class? Shall we say, I'm teaching out of Paul's version? Yes, I like that. I like that a lot. Let's say Dr. Floyd teaches Romans from Paul's version. Is that okay? Can, can, can I continue now to teach? And the student, tail tucked between his legs, goes back and sits down while the rest of us are all going. <laughs> Dr. Floyd, and that story, I'm sure are one of the core reasons, is one of the core reasons, that I am teaching this class to us. Because I loved the fact that we engage with the text in a way that you don't normally get in Sunday school. And so I'm really stoked to talk to you about the genitive case today. Now, to do that, we've got to talk about nouns. And I want to tell you that nouns... There we go. Nouns are a person, a place, a thing, an idea. Some people may say a feeling, some other things like that. But, but that pretty much encapsulates it. A person, a place, a thing, or an idea. You got it? Everybody knows what a noun is. Okay? We got to know what a noun is. Or we're sunk in this case. I mean, in this class. Okay. So a noun is a person, place, a thing, or an idea. Now with that, let me talk to you for a moment about how English uses nouns. In English, we understand how nouns function by looking at the order in which the words are placed. Word order is very important for English, right? Think about it. There's your picture. Now, if I tell you the cow ate the cabbage, you get that, right? You could form the picture in your head, and I've placed those nouns. We have two nouns there. What are they? Cow and cabbage. 
and I have placed them strategically around the verb hate. By the way, why was six afraid of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. Okay. (laughs) It'll grow on you. I would not have told that joke but for those guys on Friday night, okay? The verb is eight. That's what was done. Now, somebody was the subject that did the eating. And that's the cow. And then one noun is the object that was eaten. That's the cabbage. How do you know who the subject is? It's first. It's at the beginning of the sentence. It's before the verb. And the verb's not passive, so we know that's our noun. Right? Okay. Now, what if I told you the cabbage ate the cow? Well, that doesn't work. Or if it does, it conjures up unusual pictures. The cabbage ate the cow is not a, is, it's, it's, it's a whole different meaning. Because we changed the word order. And in English, the word order for these nouns is very important. Now, in Greek, they had a different system. In Greek, they were able to wear signs on each word. To tell you what the word did. They call them inflections or case endings or prefixes. But basically for our purposes, I just want us to think of them as a a sign that each of the words would wear to tell you what it was. And so if you've got a cow, the cow can wear a sign. And the sign can say, I am The subject. And then it doesn't matter where the cow is in the sentence. You know it's the cow who's the subject. It's the cow who's eating. Okay? So the cow gets a sign. The cabbage gets to wear a sign also. And the cabbage's sign can say, for example, I am the object. And you know that the cabbage would be the object. Now, there are different signs for different reasons. There's a sign that says, I'm an indirect object. There are signs that say any assorted number of things in the Greek. I want to talk to you about a specific sign today that words can wear. It is an ending, and it is an ending that affects... Generally, nouns. Now, Greek's got all sorts of exceptions to rules. So I'm talking generally here, but this is pretty good general stuff, okay? I want to talk to you about the genitive sign or ending or case. What happens when you take a word and you place it in or put on it a sign that says, I'm a genitive, okay? That's what we're looking at. Words that hold that sign. Now, if they wear that sign, it can be used for a lot of different reasons. It can be used to show something that you own. This is a Bible of Richards. He's put it up here for me to use. So I could say this is a Bible of Richards. Richard is the possessive. He. It, this is his. He possesses this. That's one use of genitive. There are lots of other uses of genitive. But I want to talk about a general usage that falls under the idea of wearing a sign as genitive that says, use the word of or use the word from when you're translating me. Now, that's not precise. There are lots of other words we'll use when translating a genitive. 
Sometimes we'll make it possessive and do an apostrophe S. Sometimes it's a, a, a genitive of, of source. It's, I mean, lots of other genitives. But I want to just talk in general about the idea of of or from with these words. One last grammar thing, then we're going to get real practical. And if you don't follow any of this, that's okay. I do most of this for Ellen because she's an English teacher. <laughs> she's loving it too. Okay. Um, either that or I messed up. Here's what happens when you use the genitive. The genitive functions to limit other nouns. Not always, but that's a general function of the genitive. It will limit other nouns. So you might have, a, let's use an example here. You might have a big noun. Let's say I talk about the university. Now, there's lots of universities. Lipscomb's a university. Um, Harvard's a university. But let's say I want to talk about a certain university, and I don't want you to confuse it with, like, Texas Tech, which has a winning record and will be going to a bowl game. Because I'm thinking of a university that may be able to beat Baylor when they don't have a quarterback, but won't be going to a bowl game. So I might try to limit that broad noun university by saying the University of Texas. And you see that of Texas in Greek would be genitive. They wouldn't have the word of there in the Greek. It would just say University of Texas. But Texas would wear this sign that says I'm the genitive. So stick of or from with me. Because I'm the genitive, I'm limiting the university. It's the University of Texas. Um, in the genitive of Richard in the book, if I said this Bible is Richard's, that's one way to say it, or if I could talk about the Bible of Richard that I'm holding in my hand, Richard is limiting the Bible. It's telling you something more about this Bible than you would know otherwise. You follow? Okay, now here's why this becomes useful and important. Look at this passage that I've put in the English up on the PowerPoint. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14 the following. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Christ. Now the word of is not in the Greek. We're adding that to make sense of this in English. But Christ is wearing the sign, I'm a genitive. Christu. It's got an ending on it. Instead of being Christos, which would make it a subject, it's Christu. It's genitive. And so it's telling you how it might function within this sentence to limit what whose love it is. What kind of love it is. It's not any love that controls us. It's the love of Christ. But there's an ambiguity there. Let's, uh, let's go to the Elmo for a moment. Let me write it this way. I, I do better if I can see things sometimes. And I want you to see this with me. When I talk about the love of Christ, do I mean... Christ's love? The love that Christ has for me? The love? Does the love that Christ has for me control me? Or 
do I mean that Christ is the object of this love? So it's the love that I have for Christ. The Greek genitive can mean either one of those. It can be what's called a subjective genitive, where Christ is the subject of the love. Or it can be an objective genitive, where Christ is the object of the love. An objective genitive. It can be either one. So how do we decide? How do the translators decide? Let's go back to the PowerPoint. I'm going to suggest that there are a couple of things you should do if you want to know which it is. The first thing you do, of course, is look at the syntax itself. But the syntax, the Greek grammar rules, isn't going to tell you. So we're setting that aside. So when there's ambiguity, without that Greek syntax, what we need to do is we need to look first at, is this a common phrase this author uses? And if so, how does the author use it other times? If it's something that someone uses habitually or consistently, then maybe we can find by looking at the other examples what the author means. Does Paul say the love of Christ on more than one occasion using this genitive construction? If so, let's see if we can find something there. Second thing you can look at is the immediate context. Let's just look within the this, not just this phrase, but within this verse, within this chapter, maybe within this book or the section of the book or letter. But let's look within the context to see if it tells us what Paul means. And then a third way is to look at theology. Let's just try and, and see what makes sense with the overall teaching of the Bible and what we know about God. So I want to do those three things with two phrases from Paul today. The first phrase is the one that we're using as our easy example. And so if we go to the Elmo, and what we're going to do, Booth, so that you all know what's going on, we're going to switch back and forth a little bit between the Elmo and PowerPoint. I'll just have to tell you when. So we start with this passage in Romans 2, I mean in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, this love of Christ is in the genitive. So this is what we're trying to figure out. Our goal is, is it Christ's love for us or is it our love for Christ? that changes who we are and how we live, that controls us. These are our choices. We're looking at A or B. Now, some Greek grammarian out there is going to say, there's a plenary genitive, which could be both. And yes, we'll get there. But we're not getting there yet. 2 Corinthians 5.14 for the love of Christ controls us. So what's the first thing we're going to do? Go back to the PowerPoint, please. First thing we're going to do is look for the author's other uses. All right, if we go back to the Elmo, let's clap for the control booth. They pay attention up there. That's not easy to do. Not easy to do at all. Thank you, guys and gals. Here's another passage. Romans 8.35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's the same. It is a genitive. We want to know what's going to separate us from... Now, here's pretty critical. 
Is Paul saying what will separate us from Christ's love for us? Or from our love for him? That's pretty critical, isn't it? Look at the next passage. Ephesians 3.19. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, let's just be candid with each other. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Have you ever in your life had anything come between you and the love you have for Jesus? I have. Consistently. I would love to tell you that your life group teacher puts Jesus number one in his life all the time, in every way, and there has anything come between me and my first love, Jesus. But I would be lying to you if I said it. Instead, I'm going to have to tell you that if I'm reading Romans 8.35 right, the thing that will never separate me is nothing will ever separate me from Christ's love for me. Tribulation, when I'm going through a tough time, when I'm having difficulty, when my world is falling apart, it's not going to separate me from the love that Jesus has for me. When I'm in distress, when I feel like I'm being shaken to my bones, I never have to fear that Jesus loves me less or that Jesus has turned his back on me or that I'm facing life alone. When I'm being persecuted, when I'm not having enough to eat and I'm lack clothing, when I'm in danger, when the sword is threatening me and I'm faced with death, I need never fear that something has come in the way of me and Jesus for his love for me because nothing will. You see, this is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's not, look, I'd love to tell you I know more about Jesus than you could ever know. My love of Jesus surpasses all knowledge. No, Christ's love for me is something that's beyond my ability to understand or know. It surpasses what I could ever know. Christ's love for me. So we look at this and we can see from Paul's other usages that Paul tends to use this idea of the love of Christ referencing the love that Christ has for us. So then we're looking at, for the love of Christ controls me, maybe this means Christ's love controls us. So if we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment, we want to look at the author's other uses, but we also want to look at the immediate context. So let's look back at the Elmo. What's the immediate context? Look first just within the verse itself, which is all I'm going to have time for, but you should expand this look and look at the rest of the chapter and book. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Do you see within the context a reference to Paul's thinking that we're controlled by Christ's love for us because Christ died for us and so we've died. It affected us. Paul is saying within the context itself that he's talking about Christ's love for us. It doesn't say... For the love we have of Christ controls us 
because we've concluded this, that we do for him because we loved him. It starts out with, he died for us. Which brings us, if we go back to the PowerPoint, to the third question. Let's look at the theology. Go back to the Elmo, please. And I'm telling you, the booth's got it. Look at these passages and see if it doesn't make sense. I've put down four from John. John 5, 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So who's got the greatest love for you and me? Christ's love is the greatest. Now, we do love Jesus. But why? We love because he first loved us. So it's his love that has prompted our love. It's his love that has taught our love. It's his love that has drawn us to love him. And how do we know he loved us? He laid down his life for us. That's how we've learned love. Without that, we don't know what this type of love even is. And Jesus tells us that his love will prompt not only a responsive love from us, but we know when we love him that it does change how we live. The key for us, though, is not to think that it's our love that started this whole thing. What really controls us is the love of Jesus. Practical for a moment. Having struggles in your life in some way? Having struggles with your behavior in some ways? Spend time dwelling on the love that Jesus has for you. Let me give you some ways to do that. Number one. It's going to shock you. Get ready. You've never heard this before. Go to church. Because when we go to church, at least at this church, we're going someplace where we're drawn into times of worship and focus upon Jesus Christ, God's love for us. Here's another shocker. Read the Bible. When you read the Bible, especially focusing upon the cross of Christ, God's love for us, it reprograms all of the brain bad habits that we've got. It reprograms our language. It reprograms our priorities. It reprograms the traps. Here's another one. Pray. May stun you, but pray in the name of Jesus. Come before God based upon the merit and value of Jesus, thanking Him for Jesus and letting Him change who you are. The love of Christ controls us. As we understand more fully that Jesus died for us, that he gave everything he could for us, that's not fiction, that's not a made-up story, it's a reality, it happened. If we could get in the TARDIS and go back in time, and if you don't watch Doctor Who, you don't get that. But boy, is there a show waiting for you. If we could get in the TARDIS and go back in time, we could physically watch Jesus Christ be resurrected from the dead. But we could go three days earlier and see him dying for us. We could stand at the feet of the cross and see God incarnate. We could fast forward through time. We could see the babe born. We could see the babe grow. We could see the babe minister. We could see the man die. We could see God die and resurrect in power and come again. That is all real. 
And when we understand not just that it's a real event, but we understand the whys behind it, it will moderate and change who we are and how we live. Okay, you with me? Now, all of that was to set up what I really wanted to talk to you about in class. Here's the problem. We got 15 minutes and I can't be late for a lunch event today. So, you're going to have to read a bunch of this on your own. But it's in your handout. We're still going to get started. Here's your passage. And I want to tell you this. The New International Version and the English Standard Version have robbed you of a chance to make a decision on what you think Paul means because they've made it for you. This is one of the few times you'll hear me say, love that King James. King James lets you make this decision. Here's your passage. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Some of the most incredible scripture there is. Changed the history of this world when Martin Luther got a hold of this. Changed the history of my life. When Dr. Floyd explained this to me. Paul has spent two and a half chapters explaining to everyone they're going to hell. For two and a half chapters, Paul has said, hey, the standards of God are this. You live perfect, you go to heaven. You sin, you go to hell. Doesn't care if you're a Jew. Doesn't care if you're a Greek. You want to stand before God based upon your own two feet and your own merit? You're going to hell. Nobody's done a good deed. Not even one. No one is adequate. No one measures up. Not just Paul, Mr. Persecutor of the church, but no one. So you're all going to hell until you get to Romans 3.21. And that's the pivot verse. That's the good news. But now, see, look at verse 20. This is the end of the you're all going to hell part. By the work, by works of the law, no human being, none will be justified in his sight. Not one. You'll even know through the law that you're, you, you are a sinner. No one, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. Now we've got a righteousness from God that's not based upon law. Remember, if you will, our Greek class where we dealt with the DK words, dikaios, this word in the Greek, justified, and this word, righteousness, are the same word in the Greek. No one will be righteous or justified in his sight, but now we do have a righteousness or a justified in his sight of God. It's genitive, by the way, Theu. Has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness or justifiedness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. Now this faith in Jesus. Is a decision that was made by the Bible translators. What it says is faith Jesus in the genitive. What it says is I pulled Young's literal translation for you. Look at Young's. Literal translation. The righteousness of God. Oops, here we go. The righteousness of God is through the faith 
of Jesus Christ to all and upon all those believing, for there is no difference. So the question for us is, does this mean through the faith of Jesus Christ, the faith we have in Jesus, where Jesus is the object of that faith, is it an objective genitive? Or does it mean the faith that Jesus has? Does it mean Jesus' faith? Where Jesus is a subjective genitive. Which is it? Now, the... English Standard Version tells you it's the faith we have in Jesus, and they translate it that way, through faith in Jesus. That's the way they translate it. So what are we going to do? Well, we could just say, my gut tells me it's A. And heaven knows I've got quite the gut. Or we could say, my theology tells me it's A, because I am a Protestant. Nothing personal, Bob. I am a Protestant. And since the Reformation movement, we've understood justification by faith alone. But let's do something a bit more studious, if you will. Might I suggest an alternative? Here's my alternative. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Let's look at Paul's other uses. Let's look at the immediate context. And then let's consider theology. That's the way we'll determine what Paul meant with his genitive. Paul's other uses. If we go back to the Elmo. Now, here's the problem. In the English Standard Version, or the New International Version, which are the two most of you use, all of them have been chosen for you. So I've had to pull out his other usages. You won't even know it's there. I've had to pull it out in some different translations. I've got Young's Literal and the King James. Romans 3.26 For the shewing forth of his righteousness in the present time, this is a British translation, for his being righteous and declaring him righteous, who is of the faith of Jesus. As opposed, let, let me do it. I've got a better way to show you this. Let me show it to you this way. Forget that for a moment. Hold on. Here is Romans 326 in the English Standard Version versus Young's Literal Translation. Here's the version you've got in your Bibles you probably carry. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God saves those with faith in Jesus. But that Greek doesn't have the word in, and Jesus is in the genitive, and it might mean Jesus' faith as opposed to the faith we have in Jesus. So that God is the justifier of the one that Jesus, uh, uh, who is the justifier of the one who is of Jesus' faith. Okay? That's Young's literal. The showing forth of his righteousness in the present time for his being righteous and declaring him righteous who is of Jesus' faith. The faith of Jesus. Look at Galatians 2.16. We have two occurrences here. English Standard Version. Know that a person is not justified by works of law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law. Because by works of the law will no one be justified. Or Young's literal. 
having known also that a man is not declared righteous by works of law, if not through the faith of Jesus Christ. Might mean Jesus' faith. Also we in Christ did believe that we might be declared righteous by the faith of Christ instead of faith in Christ. So you're going to have the same problem in each of the versions depending upon which one you read. So what do you do next? And you'll have to look at this more closely in your text. I mean in your um, handout. But if we go back to the Elmo, I mean to the PowerPoint. We can look at the immediate uh, author's other uses. We can look at the immediate context and we can look at the theology. I'm going to put those together. We're going to do it in three minutes. It's cursory. I'm sorry. Let's look at it with the Galatians passage. That's clearest if we go back to the Elmo. Although we'll keep Romans 3.22 up as well. Here's my suggestion to you. I think in Romans 3.22, there is a really good indication that Paul is actually talking in the first situation about Jesus' faith. The faith of Christ in that sense. He says, the righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus Christ to all and upon all those believing. Believing's the same word as faith. It's just the verb form. Faithing. For there's no difference. What Paul is saying here is called, in my opinion, a plenary genitive. It means Paul is written ambiguously on purpose. Because Paul wants us, you can take this either way and you are so theologically correct. But both ways have an emphasis that we need to understand. We are saved because Jesus Christ was faithful. We are saved because of the faith that Jesus had. We are saved by faith of Jesus. Jesus' faith first and foremost. He was the first faithful one. He was the only faithful one. He's the only one with perfect faith. Jesus was faithful to the point of death. Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done. But he wanted the cup to pass. But he maintained his faithfulness. And I dare say he did it because God is faithful to his covenant promises to us. And he'd made those for thousands of years. And if God is not faithful first then our faith is in nothing that is reliable. Our faith is a responsive faith. And it's imperfect. Oh, I can remember thinking when I was young, I wonder if I have enough faith to be saved. And how glorious it was to find out that the answer to that is, Jesus had the saving faith. I don't have to have a gallon and a half of faith to make the mileage I need to get to heaven. I put whatever trust I've got in Him, and Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I can rely upon His faith to be my righteousness. I can rely upon the faithfulness of Jesus to sustain me as well as to justify me. Because he is faithful. And it was his faith first and foremost. And, 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 and historically the church has shunned this understanding until the last 60 years or so. But the last 60 years, the church has finally said it should not offend us, the idea that Jesus was faithful. Jesus' faithfulness is not what made him righteous. It's what makes us righteous. Jesus was righteous by his own life, by his perfection. But he was faithful, and that's a part of his perfection. And the faithfulness of Jesus is a faithfulness for me. 
And so when I look at these passages, I understand now why Paul can say the righteousness of God that's through the faith of Jesus Christ to everyone who has faith. I can understand the Galatians passage. Having known also that a man's not declared righteous by works of law, if not through Jesus' faithfulness, then we in Christ Jesus who believe, who have faith, that we might be declared righteous by the faithfulness of Jesus. There's an ambiguity there that Paul, Paul was not a sloppy writer. Paul didn't take this huge, massive point upon which his theology and life changed and have confusion about how he wrote it. Paul has deliberately, I believe, written it in such a way as to emphasize not only the faith that we have in Jesus, but the faithfulness of Jesus himself. You with me? So with that, PowerPoint points for home. Oh, I have a Greek geek for you. Hey, geek! Are there any biblical Greek foods? Yes, I was writing this at a time I was hungry. I think I got this right around Thanksgiving. And we got Christmas on the way. Are there any biblical Greek foods we should know about? Hmm. Donuts. They're holy and from Greece. Okay, here's your Greek for home. (laughs) The righteousness of God is to all and upon all those believing. I'm placing my faith in Jesus. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That same passage says the righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to rely on Jesus' faithfulness. Nothing will separate me from his love. And nothing will separate me from his faithfulness. And so being found in him, having that righteousness which comes from God through the faithfulness of Christ. Oh, I need the perfection of Jesus. Some of you are really getting close to finishing memorizing 1 John. I think it's really cool. We're going to have you stand up next week. Okay, I won't do that. But we will still applaud some of you because I know many of you who've done it. Thank you. Can I bless you before we leave, please? Lord, I pray a prayer of blessing upon us. uh, A blessing in the name of Jesus, the faithful one. May his faithfulness, Lord, translate into faithfulness for us. May the love of Jesus control us, Lord. Instill in us peace Instill in us faith. Instill in us each moment that we need to walk before you as loving and trusting children. In Jesus we pray. Amen.